You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. My name is Brent Kirkley. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I want to welcome you to our services this morning. And If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to begin turning to the book of Psalms, Psalm number 146. We're going to be continuing the summer series that Ross began last week, our series in the Psalms. And when you study the Psalms, you're exposed to a very broad range of human emotion and experience. The psalmist at times takes us on almost a roller coaster ride emotionally. We're told about sadness. We're told about suffering, about troubles, about different kinds of difficulty that the psalmist gets into. And as we read the Psalms, we're able to relate to them. Because as part of the human experience of living in a world that's broken by sin, in a world where we get hurt, We understand what the psalmist is saying. And as we look at this, we need to recognize also that as we read through the psalms, that we find there are psalms of joy and thanksgiving and praise. And we oftentimes see the psalmist worshiping and just declaring the greatness of God. And God uses that message of his greatness that's spoken by the psalmist to touch our hearts and to draw us closer to him and and encourage us during difficult times. So yes, there are the psalms that express sorrow and trouble and difficulty, but there are also the psalms that look at the joy and thanksgiving and praise. And then as you get closer to the end of the book, it's like the focus begins shifting to praise. It's like the book is reaching its heights and its highest place. And the last five psalms are called the hallelujah praise psalms. Each of them begin with the word hallelujah, which means praise the Lord and ends with the same hallelujah call. And this morning we're going to look at the first of those five psalms, Psalm 146. And when we think about how the idea of of praise is used, we kind of have an understanding of it in our English. I mean, we are all people who praise those things that we consider as being important. I enjoy praising my son and my daughter for how good of parents they are. They're so much better than Jill and I were when, when we had children. I praise my wife. We've been married over 40 years, and I am so thankful for her love and her acceptance of me. I find when I'm in the community, I, I praise our church. I speak highly of it in the community for you know, just the people, all of you, and the ministries that we're involved with. And we speak highly of those things that are important to us. 
on a less serious note, we speak highly of restaurants. When we go out to a restaurant and we really like it, and we get with family and friends, and they, and they ask, where do you want to eat tonight? We've got an opinion. And it's because we really like the place. We hold it up high. We praise it. We take a trip. We travel with our family. And it's a good trip. Not all family trips are. But if this one's a good one, we take our pictures and we, we post it on Facebook. And we tell everybody what a great time we had and, and how great this place was. And I know you understand what I'm saying because I'm on Facebook with a lot of you. And I look at your pictures from your different trips. And I hear about the things that, that you find a lot of joy in. And so we're not totally unfamiliar with the idea of praise. But when we look at how praise is used in the Old Testament, it's used in a much broader sense than how we usually think about it. We see about seven different words that are used to describe the different aspects of praise. Sometimes praise is describing a person. The very first time in the Bible that the word praise is used, it's used in regard to Abraham's wife, Sarah, when the leaders of the court in Egypt were observing her and said, she's such a beautiful woman, and they praised her, it says. So sometimes it's used to describe people, but overwhelmingly in the Old Testament, praise is used to describe the characteristics of God. When we think about the words, those seven different words are used in different ways to show the nuances of, of what praise is about. Sometimes it's regarding music and musical instruments, much like we did this morning with, with lifting our voices in praise to God. And as we play the music in a way that honors God, it's, it's praising to Him. Sometimes it describes the giving of thanks, that as we pause before God and we, we thank Him, we're praising Him. And other times the words describe the adoration of God as it's related to worship and to pray, prayer. When we pray to God, most of the time we will get to that point where we say, you are so wonderful. You're so great, Father in heaven. And that kind of gets to the root word of where that word praise developed from. It comes from a word that literally has the idea of shining. Like the stars in heaven shine at night and display the beauty. That's where the word originated and then out of it developed the idea that praise is the action of giving honor or declaring someone's character or actions as being very special. Or we could say very praiseworthy. When we offer praise to God, we proclaim His goodness, and we proclaim His character with our words. Praise is meant to be publicly expressed. 
when you look at that wide range of words that's used to describe praise, one of the words that comes out is the word boast. And most of the time, we look at boast as kind of a negative thing because we're told not to boast about ourselves. But there are some passages where it says, boast about the Lord, hold him up high, declare how great he is. And then so when we think about praise, it's not something that's just done in our hearts. It's not done silently as we pull away from the world and spend some time in private time with God. Praise happens then. But many of the examples of praise is that it's a public declaration like we've done this morning with singing. It's what we do in our everyday lives as we interact with people and they ask us questions and we give glory to God for that. And we say, this is because of God. Or we see something happen and we thank God for that. It's a recognition that God is involved in our life and it's a verbal recognition of that. C.S. Lewis expressed the idea of expressing praise. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise is not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. You see, what he's saying is that appreciation or admiration that's kept silent and is never expressed isn't really praise and it really isn't enjoyed. I know if something good happens in my life, whether it's something God has done or something good in events, that if I just keep it to myself, it just sort of lays there. But when I begin sharing it, that's when it has power. So Psalm 146 is a psalm of praise. It begins with hallelujah, praise the Lord, and ends with hallelujah, praise the Lord. And as the psalm begins, it begins with a personal commitment. A personal commitment by the psalmist to praising God. And then in the remainder of the psalm, the psalmist explains the reasons why he commits himself to praising God. So notice in the first two verses that the psalmist commits himself to praising God. Let's read those first two verses. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live, and I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Notice how the psalmist's commitment touches every aspect of his life. After declaring hallelujah, praise the Lord. Then he says he will praise God in his soul. Another way of saying that, when the Hebrews talked about the soul, they were talking about the entire being of the person. We could paraphrase what the psalmist says here by saying, 
I will praise the Lord with my body, with my mind, with my emotions, and with my spirit. In other words, I'll praise the Lord with everything I am as a person. But then he next commits to praise God as long as he has physical life. See, the psalmist isn't proposing a season of prayer. He's not saying for the next six months, I'm going to be thankful and I'm going to be praising to God for the good things and the wonders and, and, and who he is. No, he's making a commitment not to a season, but to his life. For as long as he has being, as long as he lives, as long as there is breath in him, he says he will praise the Lord. But why does the psalmist make a commitment of soul and life to praise the Lord? Well, I think the first reason is that God is the sovereign creator who can help those who trust him. Look at verses 3 through 6 of Psalm 146. He writes, Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On the very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. The words of the psalmist here begin with a warning. It's an interesting way to to begin a time of praise. But he wants us to understand that the major promises of safety and prosperity which are made in the world are really an illusion. This is the July 4th weekend. We're in the middle of an election year. And what that means is this is one of the major campaigning days for political candidates. And you know, it's great for us to, to be able to pause and say, thank you, Lord, for the nation that you've allowed us to live in. It's truly a blessing. But there's also a recognition that promises are going to be made this weekend. A lot of promises. Promises that are related to protection from things like terrorism and promises of economic prosperity. But what's interesting is that most of the promises that really resonate with our hearts are promises that only God can make happen. Yes, we are concerned about terrorism. Yes, we are concerned about the economy, but the reality is God is the only one who can truly watch over those things. Only God controls them. 
And now you're probably wise enough or maybe just cynical enough not to put your hope in politicians. But the reality is that we still place our hope on a lot of people. When we look at retirement, we place our hope in the person we trust to manage our investments. If we're looking at opening a business, we place our trust in those men that we are looking to for financial backing. We put our trust in employers, we put our trust in doctors, we put our trust in pastors. And anyone who has the power and anyone who has the ability to influence our lives. Well, you know, really, looking at our abilities, we also put ourselves in that position. We put our trust and hope in our skills and our abilities to handle the things going on in our lives. Using the psalmist word, we can consider ourselves the prince of our own lives. We can manage them. But the warning that the psalmist is giving us is that you and I, no matter how much power someone may appear to have, can't be the object of our trust. Because like he says, every human being, every person, their days are numbered on this earth. And with them dies their promises. And in fact, in the book of James, the question is asked, what is your life? And James answers his question. He says, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. James says, when we look at our lives and the lives of those that we are looking to put a lot of trust in, the reality is they are like that fog that lays on a pasture early in the morning. That as soon as the sun comes up, it disappears. You see, when we think about each one of us, we're going to be disappointed by the people we love and trust. That's just the facts of being in a fallen, broken, and sinful world. And we'll never be able to receive from, from people around us what we ultimately need, and that is a sure hope, a hope we can truly count on. But in contrast to the disappointments that come from trusting the people around us, the psalmist wants us to direct our attention to God. The psalmist describes God as being the all-powerful creator, the one who made the seas and the heaven and the earth. He's the one who can be trusted, and he's the one that remains faithful. The psalmist says the person whose trust is in, the, in God is blessed. I like the way he says it. He says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob. That idea of blessing carries with it an idea that's better than things are just okay. 
That word carries with it an enjoyment, a satisfaction, a relief that can only come from the Creator. When you and I are faced with a life crisis, whether it's related to a tragedy, whether it's physical health, whether it's something relational, financial, or really anything else, we will discover that the promises of the world comes up short and really leaving us needing more. In the fall of 2006, I was diagnosed with kidney cancer. My first reaction was shock and then panic. I had great doctors. I had great family support. I had a great small group at church. I had great insurance. Do you know what? I needed more. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit of God, who Jesus promised would be our comforter, the Holy Spirit sent from the Creator, He came and brought the comfort that only He could bring. And in the middle of that panic, I was able to emerge recognizing that regardless of the outcome, that it was going to be better than it was just going to be okay. And you know, that's what the psalmist is saying here in the last part of verse 6. He says, He's the Lord that keeps faith forever. The same God who the psalmist wrote about thousands of years ago was the same God who came to me sitting in a parking lot in October of 2006, totally freaking out, and brought comfort and assurance that it was going to be okay, that he was going to see me through it. And he is the same God who today comes to you in the most difficult of situations and gives you that sense of his presence that is going to be all right. But not only does the psalmist praise God as the sovereign creator and who watches over us as we trust in him, but the second reason why the psalmist commits himself to praise is that God is the faithful one who meets the needs of those who were powerless, weak, and oppressed. Look at verses 7 through 10. After saying that God is the one who keeps faith forever, he describes God as the one who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down, and the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he will bring to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. 
And then he concludes with that word, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. When I read through this list of the people that, that God watches over and cares for and executes justice for, it's so different from the list that the world creates as to who is important and who is valuable. The psalmist lived in a culture that was surrounded with the worship of false gods and false idols. And the people of that day, the leaders, used those false gods and those idols to to position themselves with more power. They used the gods and the idols to provide support to the elite and the influential and those who ruled over others. And I have to wonder how, in a world that just overlooked the hurting, how the words of the psalmist stood out. Because here, he calls our attention to a God who is not for giving power to the powerful, but power to the powerless for the oppressed, for the hungry, for the prisoner, for the sick, for the burdened, for the refugee, for the widow and fatherless. We could even say to the single parent, mom or dad who's struggling. You see, that's who God is for. As the psalmist finishes his list of how God exercises his power in verse 9 he says but the way of the wicked he will bring to ruin you see God exercises his power to bring justice to the powerless but he also exercises his power to bring justice to the guilty and to the wicked I think most of us have hearts that we want to see justice prevail. I know when I read on the net of some tragedy that that someone has perpetrated on another person, when I read about terrorist acts, when I read about genocide, when I read about the wars that's going on and the people that whose lives are being destroyed, my heart cries out and says, Lord, Do something about it. Exercise justice. Because all of us, we want to see justice prevail, and we want the wicked to be punished. And we want those who commit evil to to really get what's coming to them. And the psalmist is saying here that the God he is praising And the God he is worshiping is a God of compassion who uses his power to bring justice to the powerless and justice to the wicked. But you know, as I was thinking about this, I thought about the dilemma it puts all of us in. You know, if you and I are honest, on one level we want to see justice happen 
We want to see the world become a just and fair place. And, and we hope for it toward eternity. But on another level, while we recognize that there is injustice all around us, the reality is sometimes we have not responded justly either. Whether it's through selfishness, whether it's through self-centeredness. But I know, I find myself hearing of needs and seeing people hurting and not always responding. Now, we can't respond to everything. But I think there's a sense in which we know in our heart where God has touched our heart about a situation and maybe we chose to ignore it. But as the psalmist writes here, he's challenging us to go someplace that is difficult for us to go. While I'm not as bad as I could be, I'm also not as concerned for those who are defenseless as I could be. I don't meet God's standard in this area. And I think you're a lot like me and not only in this area, but in others, we come up pretty short. So it gets down to a question. As we read this, it gets down to a question of how can you and I worship and praise a God of love and justice knowing that we don't measure up? How can we be the kind of people who have a heart of compassion and love for the people that God cares about? Well, I think we have to go over to the New Testament to see the development of how we can be that type of person. When Jesus started his ministry, one of the first places he spoke was in the synagogue in Nazareth. Nazareth was his hometown. And for years he had gone to that synagogue and he had been taught by the leaders of that synagogue. And then he begins his public ministry, and as a man, he's invited to come and step up in front of the congregation at the synagogue and take the scroll of the Old Testament and read a portion from it. And as Jesus opens that scroll, it's in the book of Isaiah. And there Jesus proclaims what is really his mission statement for ministry. He read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, as Jesus looked at his mission, his mission was to right the wrongs of the world. Now, how did he do that? We know he didn't start large charitable campaigns. He didn't start movements. 
But Jesus executed justice for those who can't help themselves, for the poor, for the homeless, for prisoners, and for you and me. And he did it through the cross. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself all the sin and injustice of the world so we can be forgiven and have a relationship with God. I love how the Apostle Paul communicated this. He said, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, isn't that what we're looking for? Righteousness, making things right. And what Paul is saying is that someone had to pay the price for the justice. And Jesus did it on the cross as he hung between two thieves as he endured the judgment of God upon himself so that you and I can have a relationship with God. On the cross, Jesus took your sin and my sin upon himself. And as we understand that, as we let it grasp not only our minds, but our hearts also. We're changed. The knowledge that we can place our faith in Christ allows us to become a new creation that we sing about. We're not the same anymore. Praise the Lord. And God has given us a life, a life that is more than okay it's like the psalmist says it's blessed the psalmist said in verse 2 that I will praise the Lord as long as I live I will sing praises to my God while I have my being we can be a people like that as we first come to Christ recognizing our sin and allowing him to forgive us and then living out in our lives that truth that we are not the same anymore this morning we're going to be taking communion together and as we take the bread and the juice it's a call to us to remember what Jesus did for us as you take the bread, remember that his body was nailed to the cross so the justice of God could be satisfied for you. And as you drink from the cup, remember that the blood that Jesus shed was shed as a covering for your sins. As we gather for communion, it's a time where those who have trusted Christ, those who have a relationship with him, we invite you to join together. And if you haven't come to that place in your life where you've trusted Christ yet, just allow the elements to pass and take the time to think about 
the great offering on the cross that Jesus made for you. At this time, I would invite those who are going to be serving communion to come forward. And as you receive the elements, I would encourage you to bow your heads and just spend a time of personal confession that you would examine your heart and contemplate the death of Christ for you. And if you're allergic to gluten, we will have a deacon out in the lobby to be able to serve you a gluten-free communion bread. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that you do love us. That, Father, you endured the cross, that you took our guilt and our shame upon yourself so that we might have life. So, Father, we praise you for that. We praise you for your love and for your graciousness, for your goodness and your mercy. And, Father, we praise you that you loved us, that you came and died upon the cross. And, Lord Jesus, your body was broken, your blood was shed, that we might have life. And, (coughs) Father, we thank you for that. Go with us now as we take these elements. Be with us that we would think through very seriously all that you've done for us. And that, Father, we would cleanse our hearts before you, that we might be be able to have fellowship with you. Lord, we love you. Guide us. We pray this in your sons. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.